1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Disability Study Channel on New Books Network. Today I feel very happy to invite Dr. Knight and Dr. Miller to join us to introduce their recent book, Prenatal Genetic Testing, Abortion and Disability Justice. So the first thing, I want to invite both Dr. Miller and Dr. Knight to introduce yourselves to our audience.
2: Well, hello. Thank you so much, Xu, for having us on. We really appreciate this opportunity to talk about our book. But my name is Amber Knight, Dr. Amber Knight. I'm an associate professor of political science and public administration at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte.
1: And uh, I am Dr. Joshua Miller. Um, I am now an assistant professor at... Uh, UNC Charlotte, uh, also in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration. Okay. Thank you so much for your
0: answer. So let's go to our next question. Could you please briefly introduce, uh, sorry, could you please briefly tell us what's the reason you take interest in the promising field of disability studies?
2: That's a really great question. So um, I was born with a limb difference. I was born without a left hand. And I went to graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill to study feminist theory and was very surprised that despite the fact that feminists paid a lot of attention to body politics, uh, when I was in graduate school, disability still wasn't getting much attention. Uh, And so I really kind of decided that I wanted to bring kind of a critical disability perspective to my discipline of uh, kind of normative political thought. So that was my budding interest, and I wanted to try to integrate some of my lived experiences into my research.
1: Yeah, and and I came into this uh, mainly through working with Amber. Um, We both went to graduate school together, actually, at Chapel Hill. So I'd known her for a long time before we ever thought about working on a project together. Um, This is our sort of maiden effort at at doing any kind of co-authorship with anybody ever. So it's been a nice exercise in that regard. Um, But I was interested in uh, questions about bioethics um, and applied ethics increasingly, again, like Amber, sort of tying that in with with feminist theory. Um, But like Amber said, I mean, we didn't have, I, I at least never had any coursework that focused specifically on disability studies. Um, it wasn't part of our canon. And so I just didn't have a lot of exposure to it, like a lot of other normative theorists. It just wasn't something that was particularly prominent. And so this is a really good opportunity for me to learn a lot about that literature and uh, to engage in what seemed like a really important uh, political issue, um, which, you know, often political theorists, uh, depending on the kind of work you do, you don't really get a chance to do so much. So this was um, really educated for me. Okay. Thank you so much for
0: your answer again. So then let's go to your book. So my first question is, uh, could you please briefly talk about the reason why you choose to take autonomy as a theoretical focus point in the book?
2: Thank you. So the book is you know, about prenatal genetic testing and selective abortion. And it's divided into really kind of two sections. The first is there's a few chapters that are deeply theoretical that should be of interest to students of philosophy, for example, and then there's three applied chapters. And so the beginning chapter really wants to explain the meaning, uh, normative value, and political significance of the term autonomy. And one of the things that normative political theorists do is define core concepts like justice, freedom, equality, autonomy, and so on. Now, a little, this is a little bit like splitting hairs. Um, but and sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, but oftentimes they're distinctive. And so what we try to do is kind of rethink the concept of autonomy, because historically, the way it's been defined in the Western canon has really reflected the lived experiences the values, the interests of uh, dominant groups, right? And uh, has really been developed from a, a perspective of um, being a kind of primal-life, able-bodied man. Uh, and so we wanted to to kind of rethink the concept without giving it up. And so we joined forces with other kind of critical theorists and uh, feminists, critical disability studies scholars, critical race theorists, who want us to think about what self-governance right, might look like um, from the perspective of women, people with disabilities, sexual minorities, and, and so on. Um, and so we wanted to rethink or salvage the concept without giving it up. And the reason why we really value autonomy um, is for two reasons. The first is, especially in the context of reproductive decision-making, the first is that it's an aspirational ideal for social justice movements to strive toward, right? Um, We really think about autonomy as being the opposite of oppression. If oppression means the absence of choices, right, um, then autonomy is something that we could try to uh, strive toward. The second is that autonomy can serve as a standard against which to judge the legitimacy of government interventions in People's private lives, right? So it has political purchase in that way. So we we are very clear um, that autonomy doesn't do the following. And this is, I think, important from a disability studies perspective. Um, for us, autonomy does not specify the boundaries of the moral or political community, right? So, you know, even for those of us who are severely impaired, who might be incapable of some measure of self-direction. Or decision making, even even those of us who are severely impaired are still owed dignified treatment from others, right? So we're very clear in the opening chapters, like the kind of political work autonomy does.
0: So thanks so much for answer about, uh, especially in the discussion about the complexity of autonomy in your book. So my next question is about. Um, Could you please discuss the meaning and the values of reproductive autonomy in the age of reprogenetics?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll I'll say a little bit more and then I'll turn things over to to Josh for some of the the later answers. Um, But, you know, reproductive autonomy is a really core feminist value. So, among feminists, there's a general consensus that uh, pregnant people uh, must be able to choose for themselves whether when or how they will give birth and raise children, right? And so respecting bodily autonomy, for example, is a form of dignified treatment that's owed to people in a decent society. But the advent of reprogenetic technologies added another layer. So the term reprogenetics refers to the ways in which reproductive and genetic technologies converge to influence the particular genetic makeup of offspring, right? Or a child. So now not only can expectant parents make choices about whether they want kids, for example, but now they can make decisions about the type of children they can have and the types of genetic traits they may have or not want them to have. So biotechnologies like in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis make that possible. So our book focuses exclusively on prenatal genetic testing um, with a sustained focus on what's known as NIPT, which is non-invasive prenatal testing. This became available in the U.S. um, about a decade ago. And what it is, is it's a simple blood draw. Um, A pregnant patient will go in, get a simple blood draw. And from that, they can estimate the likelihood that an embryo or a fetus um, will be affected by a genetic impairment, one like trisomy 21, which is otherwise known as Down syndrome. And so these technologies raise questions about whether pregnant people have the right to their usage, right? Do they have a right to use these technologies? Um, Do they have a right to selectively abort fetuses based on the receipt of their results, right? Um, And it just raised a bunch of questions for us through the lens of autonomy. Right? So are these technologies really a means of enhancing women's reproductive autonomy? Are they a contemporary tool of eugenics or perhaps both at the same time? We wanted to ask questions about who benefits from the use of these technologies, uh, biotechnology companies, for example. Is it the patients? Is it the providers? Um, is it society? Um, who benefits and, and who might be harmed by using these technologies. And I think one of the things that makes our book distinctive is the question of what role does the government play in regulating these technologies um, or not, right? And, and you can take the technology and make it separate from the question of selective abortion or not. Uh, and so what we show in the book is that we see a really back to deck against the choice to birth and raise a child with Down syndrome, right? Uh, Our ableist medical institutions, paltry welfare state benefits, and sexist social norms around care work all steer kind of pregnant individuals toward termination. Um, And and of course, we wrote the book right before the Dobbs decision. So our conclusion talks about Dobbs a little bit. So uh, that adds some complications for sure. Um, and so do prenatal non-discrimination acts, but generally in the way that society is set up, um, it's, it's a difficult decision to continue a pregnancy. And so we ultimately argue that if the intent of prenatal screening is genuinely about enhancing pregnant women's choices, these technologies have to be administered alongside medical practices, social welfare policies, cultural norms that advance disability justice. So, in the absence of those measures, the rhetoric of reproductive autonomy can be reduced to a false pretense or might even serve as a smokescreen for a liberal eugenic agenda.
0: Thanks so much for your answer. So now let's turn to our third question about your book. So I want to invite you to discuss how medical professionals dismiss or discredit positive testimony about the values of disabled living can limit the women's reproductive options?
1: Yeah, so um, I'll I'll jump in with that one. So, um, like Amber was saying, the the book is really structured so that we deal with some of the big kind of normative philosophical ideas up front. Then we have three following kind of applied chapters um, that, that sort of really try to take the reader through the decision-making framework that prospective parents of children with disabilities, uh, in our case, particularly Down syndrome, will face as they are contemplating this big life choice. And typically that begins with uh, diagnosis. So one of the kind of major things that we were curious about beginning this project was um how the way in which a medical professional delivers the diagnosis, how that can frame and inform uh, decisions that, that pregnant individuals make in confronting this decision. So there are a couple of things that we take on here. Um, the first is a kind of acknowledgement that is a very basic principle of biomedical ethics, particularly since the 1970s, um, is this notion of, of you, know, patients having, the autonomy to make decisions about their own medical care. And an important part of practicing that autonomy is the notion that when physicians are providing them with information about a diagnosis as well as treatment options, um, they're providing that information in a way that is fully informed, uh, in a way that is uh, non-directive, very importantly, um, and a way that is impartial. So if that's the the, the medical ideal, right, that we are, are setting out... The, the giving you full information, accurate information about the condition and then giving you suggestions about how to move forward in an impartial and non-directive way. Um, part of what we found was that for a variety of reasons, physicians were falling short of that ideal. Um, in some cases, they were falling short of it because perhaps if they were trained in, say, an earlier generation of of Going to medical school, uh, medicine used to be a much more paternalistic uh, profession than it is today. Um, And so uh, the biases would come through there. Um, And often the biases would come through in part because the physicians really didn't have any prior experience with disability training. So they were looking at a condition like Down syndrome exclusively through a, a, a sort of pathology lens, and they were emphasizing all of the health complications that would attend to that condition without providing a full picture of what parenting a child with Down syndrome, what being a person with Down syndrome would be like. And again, in some cases, this is because of just a, a sheer lack on the part of the physicians for not really knowing like, what parents of children with disabilities say about that, pro- uh, about that experience. Um, they don't know anyone who has children with Down syndrome. They don't know anybody with Down syndrome. And so part of what we argue in our third chapter is that physicians enjoy what we call a kind of credibility excess. Um, They're important people in society in a medical context in which especially, um, you know, folks who who haven't maybe had a college education, um, or, you know, even if you have had one, depending on what you majored in, I was an English major in college. Um, I don't know anything about medicine. So if I go and I ask my physician, well, what should I do under these circumstances, their opinions and even just the tone with which they deliver that information is going to carry a lot of weight in terms of how I see the possibility for pursuing one course of action over another. And so we we kind of do there is we draw on the work of a of feminist philosopher named Miranda Fricker, um, who writes a lot about epistemic justice and injustice, and we uh, focus in particular on her notion of testimonial injustice. And this is a particular kind of injustice that she identifies when a, a particular group's perspective, um, their their sort of source of, of epistemic privilege, if you will, is, is rejected out of hand, um, such that their perspectives aren't being brought into that larger narrative. And what we urge in that chapter are a few things, some of them on the policy side, um, but two that I'd like to emphasize in particular Um, One being that physicians should be trained in such a way that they are exposed earlier and more continuously to those sources of information, to that testimony, Um, in part because when people survey parents of children with Down syndrome or people with Down syndrome, they overwhelmingly report that they have a very positive outlook on life, that they're very happy with their lives, that there are challenges that are associated with raising a child with Down syndrome, but they're not because of the condition, but rather because of all of the ableist norms that make it really difficult to raise a child, much more difficult than it needs to be in our society. And so part of what we say is that particularly for state-funded um, medical schools, building disability training in as a standard part of the curriculum, and actually use the University of Buffalo as a good example of this, um, you know, using, uh, you know, Normalizing and standardizing that training as part of of being a medical professional is something that we strongly encourage. Um, And secondly, we encourage um, the the full funding of the Candy Brownback Act, um, which would help to provide uh, clearer and more up-to-date, more accurate information about Down syndrome in particular, but about a lot of these other conditions as well. In part because what we were also finding through our research was that the information that patients were given, unless they could benefit from consultation with a genetic counselor who could better explain the, the results of an NIPT test, um, was that some of the times the information was just wildly outdated. Sometimes it was wildly inaccurate. And it almost always strongly uh, emphasized the negative aspects of disability and had very little, if anything at all, about some positive aspects. Of, of living with disabilities um, in this country. And so those are two of the, the major things that we focus on in that chapter.
0: Okay, thank you so much again for your question, for your answer, I mean, to my question. So let's go to your chapter four of your book. So I want to invite you to discuss the financial barrier to reproductive autonomy, autonomy.
2: Great, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so this chapter is very policy heavy and what we're doing is we're trying to imagine, you know, being in the position of someone, let's say, who has received a diagnostic confirmation via amniocentesis that they have a fetus affected by Down syndrome. So, you know, we are firmly pro-choice and, uh, you know, make that very clear up front. But like we said, we're also deeply unsettled by this stacked deck against the choice to continue with the pregnancy. and. We saw that, you know, from listening to the testimonies of, of people who have been in this position, that one of the most salient factors for them was financial considerations. Now, if you look at data from like the Guttmacher Institute, this is often the case with non-selective abortions, right? With, with termination in general, right? I just, I can't afford to uh, put food on the table for another kid. Um, and this was really amplified in the case of disability. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still recovering from from illness, so I apologize for my voice. Um, and when, when we looked at OECD data, which is, um, you know, internationally, when we looked from a comparative perspective at other advanced industrialized societies and how the U.S. was doing, uh, we weren't impressed So American families that have disabled members um, are more likely to experience bankruptcy to get out from underneath medical debt, more likely to experience food insecurity and to live in poverty uh, than so-called kind of typical uh, families. And we were curious, okay, well, what kinds of programs are out there? Um, If you're trying to, to weigh your options and think about whether or not You want to move forward with this pregnancy or you want to terminate. And so we looked at policies that are designed to kind of offset some of the costs of heightened care needs. We looked at the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, and Medicaid's Home and Community-Based Services Waiver Program. And we found many of these programs uh, kind of commendable. They have brought many families out of deep poverty, but really, um, Social Security in the United States sets up poverty as the norm. And so uh, we found, you know, when we kind of did our diagnostics, that many programs are underfunded. They're scattered across multiple bureaucracies and very difficult for many families to access. And in fact, uh, many families, for example, that might need a Medicaid waiver for personal care attendants in the home are on wait lists for up to 10 years, right? Um, and so in some, many prospective parents get the sense that they can't rely on government-sponsored support. Uh, and so what we propose in that chapter is um, a long-term care system. And we try to draw out some examples at the international level, the national level, and the subnational level to think about how to create a long-term care insurance program where family coverage would be part and parcel of the policy so that financial considerations don't loom so large in people's minds, right? We don't want the choice to continue with a pregnancy affected by disability to in any way resemble the choice to take a vow of poverty. We
1: took it all. major sort of gendered aspects of this is that what we found repeatedly, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this um, in discussing the following chapter. Um, but, but frequently there were women mothers who were having to try to navigate this really balkanized system and it becomes a, a full-time job so that in addition to all the other uh, factors that, that push women out of the official economy or into more precarious positions, um, you know, one of the really big things with this is that it's really complicated, actually, to access even funded resources. And depending on where you live and the resources at your disposal, it might feel impossible. Even though someone can look at it and say, "Oh, we funded all these things," it's like, "Yeah, it's true," but but you know, it becomes a full time job actually for someone to try to figure this out. And so that just kind of adds to compounding that stress. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So let's go to NASA
0: question. Um, I want to invite you to talk about how oppressive um, cultural norms shape women's reproductive design and the horizons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I was saying before, uh, one of the sort of major complicating factors with thinking about the decision to carry a pregnancy to term or not, and what makes it a a, really a false choice, that that language of choice doesn't really apply in a lot of ways in in our analysis here, um, is that it often requires that people consider the possibility of raising a child with disabilities in a world where they have to ask the question of whether or not the world will accept their child, but also very importantly, whether other family members are going to accept their children, whether friends are going to accept them, the world will accept them as they grow older. Um, And and these are the kinds of choices, these kinds of of, of questions that we think it's fundamentally unjust for anyone to have to ask about bringing a child into the world. Um, So there are a few added aspects of this that again kind of bring our our gendered lens into this um one is and again we talk about this a little bit more in the conclusion as well you know part of what covid not to anticipate that too much but part of what covid really uh illustrated was the ways in which um already nascent problems in uh not only ableist society but also patriarchal society um, manifested themselves. And so women were much more likely to uh, drop out of the official labor force than men were uh, during the pandemic and then and the ensuing recession. So part of what makes that particularly important for our purposes is that that's following on a very long train of, of uh, trends that feminist labor economists in particular have identified for, for generations now. Um, which showed that women are increasingly more likely to delay career or do, to delay pregnancies um, because they're concerned about their future careers. Um, that when women have children, um, if you have, say, a, a two partner household, um, if it's a typical heteronormative household, uh, it might be true that both uh, men and women enjoy the same total amount of leisure time. But that women's leisure, leisure time is fractured. So that instead of having, you know, two hours solidly to dedicate yourself to something that's not work, um, you have, yes, two hours, but that's fractured over 15 minutes here, 10 minutes here, um, because you're, you're, you know, there's much more pressure on women to uh, tend to the needs of children than there is of men. Um, and that also women's leisure time is contaminated, which means that they might be enjoying a TV show, but they're doing that while they're doing some kind of reproductive and the household. So, so those are all sort of patriarchal gender norms um, that were already present in, in a lot of households. When you throw in the uh, factor of, of, of disability, again, part of the what makes it more difficult than it needs to be to raise a child with disabilities is that there's this tendency to view families and kind of neoliberal terms as the sort of, you know, fiction of the sort of uh, atomic family um, so that care networks that might help to support that family, right? So friends, family members, you know, other groups, Um, if, if people don't feel comfortable or they don't feel confident that their family is going to feel comfortable with their child to be able to take over some of those care responsibilities, then what a lot of women are having to kind of ask themselves is whether or not they're going to completely sacrifice all of their leisure time, potentially their careers and the service of, of having a child. And so while we think that having children is hugely important, it's not the only important thing in women's lives, right? And so the, the, the big thing that we're kind of calling on here is to say, well, why would people have that, that sort of perception? And a lot of what we see here is that there's a culture that says that one, having children with disabilities is always negative and there is no upside to it it's going to be horribly draining you're going to be isolated and alienated um and the world is going to bully your child to the point that they are going to be isolated themselves and then as they grow older it's only going to make life more difficult for them right and so you get this with a a lot of testimony from parents where they worry about outliving their children because they worry about what especially if they have really heightened care needs how the world is going to treat them after they're no longer in a position to care for them. So again, a lot of what we kind of call for in this final applied chapter is a more accurate, fuller representation, more normalized representation of people with disabilities in pop culture and and in the world. Um, But also, we really push back against uh, a kind of maternal ideology of particular what's called intensive mothering, right? And the the, the sort of ideology around intensive mothering is this idea that uh, to be a good mom means to completely, willfully, joyfully sacrifice yourself entirely to the needs of your children. And uh, frankly, we just don't think that's fair. We don't think it's attainable. We don't think it should be a particular aspiration, but we also just really don't think that's fair. Um, And so you're starting to see some trend lines on this moving a little bit. I mean, there have been at least some major sort of Hollywood or or pop culture sort of references to people with disabilities in a more uplifting and uh, agentic way. Um, But also, you know, you, you do get you know, in the kind of world of, of mommy blogs, so to speak, right. And on social media, you are starting to see, you know, where there's a kind of normalization of, of people saying like, look, sometimes this is really hard and sometimes it's really great. And that's just kind of how life is that we think is actually a much more sort of optimistic sort of model of, of what mothering should look like rather than this, you know, sort of frankly, um, Always oppressive since since the you know sort of ideology of scientific motherhood in the 19th century. Um the, the centuries-old doctrine that says, you know, women, your lives are over as soon as you have children. Um, that only becomes um amplified with children with disabilities. And and so we push against both those ableist norms in this final applied chapter as well as those patriarchal norms. So
0: oh, thank you so much again for your answer. Let's go to the that's the question today. So I want to invite you to discuss, discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has as posed and spit up a problem with the existing infrastructure of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, like Amber said, we, we wrote the book over the course of the pandemic, um, which was a particularly fraught time to be thinking about a lot of these kinds of issues. Um, as we were working on kind of final drafts of the book, we were then into the recession from the pandemic. Um, and then the book was already starting to go into production before, like, just as the Dobbs decision was being made. So all kinds of things were changing to kind of the, the political economy of, of, in particular, the United States, as well as to the reproductive um, uh, rights landscape in the United States, so there was a lot that was kind of going on um, as we were, were trying to, to kind of finish this project off. So to, to start with the, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, part of what that illustrated and amplified were again long standing issues in and the disability world as well as in the sort of you know gendered workplace. So. Many of us saw this news coverage pretty widely. Um, People with uh, disabilities were uh, much more likely um, to be hospitalized for for COVID-19 and to die. Uh, In particular, people with Down syndrome were four times more likely to be hospitalized uh, for for Mm. COVID-19. People who were in assistive care facilities, particularly those with heightened needs, um, were in environments where COVID-19 was much more likely to spread. Um, That was also... Uh, a place where the people who primarily work in those industries, right, in those kinds of care industries were predominantly you know, lower income women, right? And so uh, women and people with disabilities were both um, really put on kind of the, the front end of, of absorbing the bulk of the uh, medical crisis of COVID-19. A secondary component of this, of course, was the the triaging of, of you know, how in an environment where we have a scarce number of respirators and a scarce number of hospital beds, how hospitals were making the determination of who was going to receive care and who wasn't. And a disturbing trend of you know, hospital administrators, physicians, uh, members of Congress in some cases, um, saying basically, well, look, I mean, if you have somebody who is, uh, you know, Already has you know heightened disabilities versus somebody who could be you know an able-bodied productive member of a new liberal economy. If you have to choose between these two people, who, whose life you're going to save, well, it's going to tend toward the latter at the expense of the former. And so you get a lot of of testimony from people with disabilities around this time saying basically you're expecting us, especially as we make that transition out of COVID as an acute crisis into uh, a moment where. People are saying, "Well, we're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of of vaccinations. We're tired of being in lockdown." Um, you know, people with with disabilities saying, "We're well, asking us to sacrifice our lives so we can get the economy back up and running, right?" And so, um, all of you know, a lot of what COVID nineteen did was it it sort of exploded a lot of fissures that were already present that we document earlier on in the book. Um, a secondary way in which that kind of touches on some of the, the gendered aspects of this project um, is to look at how, especially the recession from COVID, uh, affected women. So we're far more likely to drop out of the paid labor force. Um, they were, you know, already in precarious positions and, and then made even even more so. So, so part of what we kind of argue in in our concluding chapter is a way of saying that that COVID nineteen amplifies and makes more urgent a lot of the longer standing trends that we have been trying to document throughout the remainder of the book.
0: Okay. Thank you again, Thanks for your answer. To all my questions today, I will appreciate to, to learn a lot about, I mean, disability justice and women's uh, and women's experience and abortion and the intersection of those different issues. So at the end of our talk today, I want to talk to my audience. Um, I, I personally, I really enjoy reading this book, and I highly recommend all of my audience consider buy a copy of Doctor Miller and Doctor Knight's newest book, Prenatal Genetic Testing, Abortion, and the Disability Justice. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.